The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, In 1707, a squadron of British Royal Navy ships were returning from Gibraltar, and uh, they went badly astray off the coast of England, and the results were disastrous. The weather uh, had been overcast. It had been stormy for a number of days, and on October 22nd, the Admiral a guy named Cloudsley Chevelle, what a name, by the way, Cloudsley Chevelle. He consulted with all his navigators to determine the fleet's position. And uh, most of the navigators believed that they were sailing on a particular latitude near France that would take them home. And they were using old navigational techniques like dead reckoning to determine the ship's position. And so based on the advice of the navigators, Chevelle set course for home and uh, they were wrong. Later that night, uh, the flagship that Chevelle was in, called the Association, slammed into rocks off of the Skilly Islands and sank within minutes. And three other ships and over a thousand men, including the Admiral, were lost to the sea. And uh, that tragedy in the early 18th century spurred the British Parliament to fund research for the advancement of seafaring calibration systems. Faulty calibration had doomed the ships. Calibrating is an image that Matt introduced to us last week as we think about this series. Calibrating our lives by the wrong standard can doom our flourishing and our spiritual lives as well. What are you calibrating your life by? That's the question of this series. Uh, That's what the phrase rule of life is getting at. A rule of life is an ancient monastic practice that we're arguing that you all need to adopt in your lives and I need to adopt in mine so that we can withstand the pressures and the forces that want to just pull us apart from the inside and want to pull us away from the Lord. And if you're just joining us in this series, uh, it's a brief series, six weeks. This is week three. Let me catch you up to speed. A rule of life is a way of calibrating our lives to the standard of abiding in Christ. We affix the rhythms of our days and weeks and months and years to a pattern of abiding in the love of God. 
So a rule of life is a structure of life, and the structure consists of regular practices or rhythms or habits that put you in the presence of God. And so far, we've looked at two practices for a rule of life, Sabbath and solitude, silence, and stillness. Sabbath is a weekly rhythm, and solitude can be daily, weekly, even annually. Furthermore, they're both rhythms of abstinence. You refrain from something, from work in the case of Sabbath, and from noise in the case of solitude. The practice we're discussing today is a counterpart. It's a rhythm of sustenance, scripture, the intake of scripture. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, writes this, study of scripture is the chief positive counterpart to solitude. As solitude is the primary discipline of abstinence, so study is the primary discipline of engagement. That's what we're thinking about today, how the scriptures and engaging the scriptures can function as a part of our rule of life. This is also likely a practice that is much more familiar to most of you than either Sabbath or solitude, and there's both an advantage and a disadvantage in that fact. Uh, The advantage is that I would imagine a lot of you already have a habit of scripture intake in your lives as a part of your Christian discipleship, and that's a good thing. I want this sermon to to bolster that aspect of your life, uh, to bolster that part of your rule. But the disadvantage is that you might unconsciously, heck, you might even consciously be thinking, I'm good. I can start checking my phone now in the middle of the sermon. (laughs) I've got this one down. This one is basic. And I just encourage you to ask the Spirit to help you hone in and listen to him as he speaks through the Bible. I want to uh, look at part two different psalms, the ones Gloria read, Psalms of David, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, and teach you three things about the practice of Scripture as a rule of life. First, the need for God's Word. Second, the value of of God's word. And then thirdly, briefly at the end, the practice, the practice of God's word. So first let's look at the need, the needs for God, the need for God's word. These two Psalms are um, both extended reflections on the significance of and the beauty of God's word. In the Christian faith, we believe that our God, the only God, the one true God is a God who speaks. He is a God who reveals himself. He doesn't wait for us to come to him to know him. He makes himself known to us. And Psalm 19 is a wonderful summary of that. He makes himself known through creation, what we call general revelation. That's what the first half of the psalm is about. And he makes himself known through his word, which we call special revelation, which is what the second half of the psalm is about. Special revelation is codified and completed for us in the Bible, the written and inspired word of God. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. Chances are, if you just randomly open your Bible somewhere in the middle, you're going to hit Psalm 119. What it is is an elaborate and extended poem on God's word. It's a chapter in the Bible about the Bible. And uh, it's about the voice of God speaking and ministering to us in the scriptures. And the idea behind both of these texts 
And the idea behind the Christian faith is that we are all dependents. We're dependent upon the revealing God. We're dependent upon the word of God for our lives and for our salvation. Without God's voice, without the word, we are all, whether we admit it or not, hopelessly lost. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word, God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word we read there, made known primarily in the scripture, it enlightens us. It leads us. You see the implication of that verse, the premise. The premise of that verse is that if we don't listen to God's word, we won't have the lamp and light. If we don't listen to God's word, we are lost. We're in darkness. We can't find our own way. Have you ever been lost? I have. In 2003, I was in Philadelphia. And uh, it was a Monday night, and a friend invited me to the Eagles Monday night football game. They had lost in the Super Bowl the prior, or in the NFC Championship the prior year, by the way. And they were rematching the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and it was the opening of their new stadium, Lincoln Financial Field. And uh, I took the train as a second-year seminary student from my home in the suburbs down into South Philly to watch the game and got there no problem What I didn't realize is that because the game ended so late, on the way back, the train schedule was altered. And so I took the first train from South Philly to somewhere, I still don't know where, in West Philly at 1.30 in the morning and came out into the parking lot only to realize there were no more trains. And this was, by the way, before the Find My Phone era. This was before the GPS. This was before you had satellites tracking your every movement. You had like MapQuest, like literally printed out. But I didn't even have that. I also failed to mention that I was wearing a Dallas Cowboys shirt (laughs) and a Dallas Cowboys hat because I was an idiot, a 23-year-old fool. And so I'm standing in this parking lot somewhere in West Philadelphia, not humming the Will Smith Fresh Prince of Bel-Air song because I was scared out of my mind. Drunken Eagles fans are pouring out of the train, going to their respective cars, and I didn't know what to do. So I began asking random strangers for rides. I said, is anybody going to Glenside, which is where I lived? Is anyone going to Glenside? And finally, two men said, we're going to Glenside. We can take you home. Both of them had bottles of Jack Daniel in their hands, by the way. They went and got into the car, and as I was planning to get in the back seat thinking, This might be the last night of my life. These men might go murder me. They looked at me and said, are you a Cowboys fan? And uh, rather than making the good confession, I said, I'm whatever you want me to be. (laughs) As long as I can get a ride to Glenside. And uh, so they gave me a ride back to my apartment and I made it home that night. But that was a feeling of lostness. Trust me. Some of you I know have felt that way. In what ways do we feel lost? Now, I I don't mean necessarily literally lost. I mean spiritually, emotionally, psychologically lost. So often in this world, we're unsure, aren't we, of our direction, of our, our purpose. That's particularly true in our day, where there are so many voices vying for our attention and for our affection. What is true? What is a lie? 
Who should we listen to? Who should we ignore? What lines up with God's way and what doesn't? On our own, it's often impossible to tell. Remember, just a number of years ago, the very beginning of COVID, and frankly, throughout COVID, when we're hearing so much information about this brand new virus and so many people telling us what we should and should not do, I never felt in my life such a sense of confusion and befuddlement. I wonder when you feel confused and lost, unsure of your way. If you feel that way, you're not alone. It's part of the human condition, which is why Jesus says that apart from his voice, We all wander around like sheep without a shepherd. We need God's word to guide us. Our lostness, though, extends beyond just the fact that sometimes we're not sure of our direction or purpose. Our lostness and our need for God's word goes deeper. Not only are we confused and unsure, we're also rebellious. We're morally impure and bankrupt before a holy God. We're guilty. Look at what Psalm 19 says. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving, he says, the soul. If the law of the Lord revives our souls, the implication is that without God's word, our souls are dead. If the precepts of the Lord are right and cause our hearts to rejoice, the implication is that we don't naturally follow these precepts and therefore we don't naturally experience joy. And this is because of what the Bible calls sin. So we need God's word. We need God's word in part because it diagnoses us. Hebrews chapter 4 says that the word is like a sword that cuts straight into our spirits. The Bible reads us more than we read the Bible. Kafka is someone who once said this. If the book we are reading does not wake us as with a fist hammering on our skull, why then do we read it? A book must be like an ice axe to break the frozen sea within us. That's part of what the scriptures do. Have you ever had that experience? While reading the Bible, or when listening to the Bible taught or preached, I hope you have. You hear about the condition humans are in. You hear about our lostness, and and it hits you personally. You think, I'm like that. That's describing me. I'm selfish. I'm angry. I'm unforgiving. I'm ungrateful. I'm proud. That's an essential step, you see. In the spiritual journey that all of us are on, that's how God revives the soul. He shows us our need for resuscitation. And then he provides it through the good news we find in his word. Let's look at that idea next. We see the need and then the value. The value of God's word. That's what really this second part of Psalm 19 is about. The psalm helps us understand how being in the scriptures, reading the Bible, listening to God's voice changes us. There are a few things we can see in these verses about the value of the Bible. First, the Bible is valuable because it's trustworthy. Notice the adjectives used for the Bible in these verses. You heard Gloria read them. The Bible is perfect, verse 7. It is sure, verse 7. It is right, verse 8. It is true, verse 9. The Bible can be counted on. God's word is dependable. It's a clear source for understanding who God is and who we are and what our world is about. 
The trustworthiness of the Bible is based on the trustworthiness of its author, who is primarily God himself. So the Bible's trustworthy, but the Bible's also transformative, and therein lies part of its value. The Bible's not just a catalog of information about God, that you can go Dewey Decimal your system, system your way into knowing him better. Rather, through the Bible, God communicates truth to us with an intent to change us, to transform us when we receive it. Look at the verbs in Psalm 19 that are used to describe what the scriptures can do in us. Revive, verse 7. Make wise, verse 7. Rejoice our hearts, verse 8. Enlighten the eyes, verse 8. Enduring forever, verse 9. Elsewhere in the scriptures, God speaks through Isaiah and says, my word shall not return to me empty. But it will accomplish the purpose I have for it, and it will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The Bible can change you. That's why Scripture is such a fundamental and formative practice for all of you, frankly, whether you're not a Christian, you're not sure if you're a Christian, or you are a Christian. Reading the Bible is not just gaining information. It is a participatory experience. It's a participatory experience. Listen to what Pastor Eugene Peterson wrote. He says this, quote, This may be the single most important thing to know as we come to read and study and believe the scriptures. The rich, alive, personally revealing God as experienced in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, listen, is personally addressing us. In whatever circumstances we find ourselves, at whatever age we are, in whatever state we are. Me, you, us. Christian reading is participatory reading. Receiving the words in such a way that they become interior to our lives. The rhythms and images becoming practices of prayer, acts of obedience, ways of love. Have you engaged God in the Bible that fully and that personally. It's certainly possible to read the Bible and not experience what Peterson describes in that quote. And the reason for that is that on top of our own spiritual dullness, we have devised all kinds of ways of reading the Bible while keeping our distance from God. We can read the Bible but not ever really participate in the life of the Father, Son, and Spirit. How do we do that? There's all kinds of ways. I'd be interested to hear if you can think of any. Just a couple that I thought of. One way we do that is by reading the Bible only intellectually. Very common, frankly, in our own particular tradition. If you have a curious mind and like to learn things, you can hardly do better than being a student of the Bible. I mean, there are a staggering number of books about the Bible. You can spend a lifetime reading about its languages and its culture and its history and its geography and its poetry and never exhaust it. You can read the Bible only practically, using the Bible as like a self-help manual that dropped down out of heaven for you to do better in life and hack your life in a way that eliminates some of those 
pesky problems that you experience. You want your children to behave, so you look to the Bible for parenting advice. You want to have a better marriage, so you look to the Bible for marriage counsel. And the Bible, we think, can keep us on the straight and narrow if we just do what it says. You can read the Bible only for inspiration. Why do you think there's like a cottage industry of cute little Bible verses that we put up on our kitchen walls? There's so many beautiful, comforting passages in the Bible. And when we're lonely or when we're grieving, what better place to go than famous Bible passages? Now, none of those reasons for reading the Bible is bad. None of those things are, are wrong. But none of them are the main reason we read the Bible. And if you read the Bible only in these ways, you can easily actually miss God. You see, what this can be is us using the Bible for our purposes. And those purposes don't necessarily require anything of us relationally. It's entirely possible to come to the Bible in total sincerity Responding to its intellectual challenges, looking for moral guidance, looking for spiritual uplift, and not in any way have to deal with a personal God who has personal designs on your life. God's word is valuable because through it, you encounter God who speaks and summons and calls and pleads with you personally, really And that leads to one final reason why the word is valuable. It's trustworthy, it's transformative, but moreover, in it, we learn and encounter what the real God is like. This God who speaks and summons and has a design on our lives is primarily a God of love. Do you know that? Fundamentally, he is a God of grace. Back in Psalm 19, look at how the psalm ends. Verses 12, 13, and 14. David, after reflecting on what the word is, basically writes, hey, when I encounter God in the scripture, I remember the gospel. And what is the gospel? He tells us right here in these verses in very Old Testament-ish language. He says, the gospel is that I'm far worse than I actually ever thought. (laughs) He says, who can discern his errors? When you're encountering God in the word, it's going to expose you, it's going to diagnose you, it's going to break down your inherent thought that you are okay on your own. You are full, the scriptures say, of corruption, of darkness, and of brokenness. David says that. My guilt is great. I need you to declare me innocent. My shame is real. My shortcomings are going to be fatal if I'm left to myself. But God's mercy and God's love is far deeper than I ever dreamed. He believes the gospel here. God will declare me, verse 13, blameless and innocent of great transgressions. He confesses God is my rock and my what? Redeemer. He has bought me out of my sinful, shameful, broken place and brought me in to his home, his love, and his kingdom. The Bible points us to the vital heart of God. We have all turned away from him. We have all rebelled against his kindness. We have all betrayed him, and yet he forgives us. 
He forgives us for all of our sins. He redeems us out of all of our bondage. He gives us a new identity as his children. And he does it all for free. Without any payment expected, without any deserving required, he gives us what we could never earn. The entire Bible is about the story of God's love, which rescues us out of sin and death. Do you know that message? You can find it in the scripture. It's it's a means of encountering God and his forgiving, transcendent love. No matter your sin, no matter your guilt, no matter your failures, listen, no matter what your past is, Jesus Christ has died to pardon you and has promised to rescue any who will come to him and trust in the meaning of his death and resurrection. That's the value of God's word. Therein you find salvation. But finally, the practice. I just want to conclude with a couple of practical ways that we can incorporate scripture into our rhythm, into our rule of life, given our need for it and given its value. How can you implement it more faithfully? First, make it a practice, a daily practice. I don't know how else to say it other than that. Like you just need to do it every day. And, and I think it's valuable to try to do it in the morning. I can't legislate this. There's no verse in the Bible that says you must read the Bible in the morning. But I think it's valuable, and here's why. The routines of our days, especially our beginnings of days, often powerfully form our loves and our identities. Think about it. When you start your day by picking up your phone and looking at political news, what is that going to form you into being? It's going to form you into being angry. Whether you're looking at news on the right or news on the left, you're going to be ticked at how jacked up and messed up you think our world is. And you would be right, by the way. Uh, When you start by going to Instagram or whatever we go to now, TikTok, is that a thing still? I don't know. When you go to these places and see all the fake images of people pretending that their lives are a lot better than they are, your identity is going to be formed by envy and jealousy and greed. But when you start by going to scripture and just taking some time to be in God's presence, that will form your identity. So do that. Secondly, listen to the Bible. Don't just read the Bible. I think reading the Bible, of course, is necessary, but can sometimes be an enemy to listening. Reading is a solitary solo practice. It requires a different skill sometimes than listening. Listening is a communal act. And in the Bible, we don't just read about God. We listen to God. So how do I get from reading to listening? The way to get the bridge from reading to listening is meditation. I don't mean some sort of weirdo Eastern transcendental meditation. I mean taking time and slowly reflecting prayerfully on what you read. Many of our fathers in the faith used a method that has come to be known as Lectio Divina which is a fancy way of saying you read the same text four times slowly and each time just sort of simmer or marinate on a different part of what you're reading and let the voice of God speak to you through the scripture. It's a lot different than buzzing through it, marking off your chest list, and then looking at Fox News and marinating in that. Sorry. Or CNBC, Equal Opportunity Defender, and marinating in that. Okay, so listen, don't just read. Third, make use of resources. 
We do live in a day where there are, all, there are more resources available to every single one of you than the world's greatest Bible scholar 150 years ago had. Do you know that? There's podcasts. There's a library of stuff online. Talk to me, by the way, before you just Google Bible resources. Um, there's all kinds of great resources out there. There's Bible on audio. You can listen in the car. You can marinate on God's word in your car. I'd encourage you to make use of those and fit those into your daily rhythms. And then lastly, keep showing up. That's a principle for athletics. That's a principle for marriage. It's a principle for the Christian life. Just keep showing up. Do it consistently. Marianne and I uh, are deep friends with a, a uh, an elder from our church in Philadelphia and his mother who recently passed away at the age of 102, but was a wonderful lady who was a mentor of ours in the early 2000s when we were in Philadelphia. Her name was Marty Anderson. And I remember so vividly Marianne often asking her, what has been the most significant aspect of, of your own Christian growth? She, you know, as a 90-year-old saint. And she would say, there's nothing special about what I do, except I just try to read my Bible every day. And then she would show us her Bible. And it was like, uh, you remember Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Remember his grail diary? It's like all these beat up pages and Mark. That's what her Bible was like. Like the use was obvious. And uh, she had spent a lifetime just showing up with God and his word. And it had formed her in a way that no one single event could ever do but that over the trajectory of decades was monumental. There's all kinds of ways you can adopt practice of the scriptures into your rule. I want you to consider it and to do it because it's valuable. David Watson is a author, and I was reading a letter of his this week. I'll close with this, in which he's reflecting on his struggle with cancer. And uh, towards the end of the letter, uh, he, he writes this. As I spent time chewing over the endless assurances and promises to be found in the Bible, so my faith in the living God grew stronger and held me safe in his hands. God's word to us, spoken by his spirit through the Bible, is the very ingredient that feeds our faith. If we feed our souls regularly on God's word several times each day, we should become robust spiritually just as we feed on ordinary food several times each day and become robust physically. Nothing is more important than hearing and obeying the word of God. Let's pray.